Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It's so glad to have you along. It's Good News Friday. It's also the Friday before Mother's Day. It's also getting into the middle of the week. Mother's Day's late this year, uh, in case you're wondering. Why? Today's the 12th. Why are we getting into a Mother's Day conversation this late? Well, the reality is um, we've got, you know, it's the second Sunday of the month of May. That's how we determine when Mother's Day shows up. And, uh, you know, it's amazing how many people um, don't know the history of Mother's Day, don't understand the role that motherhood plays in the culture right now. Uh, You know, it's interesting. Um, I I realize that if you look at statistics over and over and over again, when it comes to faith in Christ, growing as a Christian, becoming the person that God has called you to be, uh, statistically, what you're going to find, uh, there are a number of people who will look at the culture and say, you know, I'm really glad we go to XYZ Church because my pastor's amazing. Our youth pastor's incredible. Our kid's really going to grow in faith, and I want to make sure that they have that good experience. But you know what? I mean, I mean this most sincerely. I've seen it having worked in youth ministry for 25 years, having seen this show up over and over again. You know who has the greatest influence on a child's faith? You might think it's their friends, and maybe, and you might think it's their family. Well, yeah, they certainly you know have an impact as well. The number one influencer, study after study after study shows, the number one influencer on a child's faith, hands down, is mom. Make no mistake about it. Hands down, mom, statistically, has the most influence on a child's faith. Now, dad, don't get too disheartened. Um, I I know what it's like to be that dad who I was the one taking the kids to church when mom was going through a season of struggle and uh, confusion about what you know her relationship with the Lord was. And uh, ultimately, as our marriage ended, um, we had to come to terms with the fact that she never really recovered from that in terms of finding a church home. I mean, I'm just sharing casually here and uh, candidly about what it was like. Um, I don't know that she ever lost her faith in Christ, but she really lost her faith in the church. And it really had an impact on our children, hands down. And it's so interesting to me to see how God let each of our kids, biological kids, wander down a road where, you know, every kid goes through this. I mean, my parents were happily married. My goodness, they're celebrating their 68th wedding anniversary this August. We were in church every Sunday. My dad was on staff at uh, every church that we attended when I was growing up. And even then, each of us had to go through a season where we really had to question. We really had to wander. And it's so interesting. My sister and I were on the phone for about an hour Monday night talking about our faith and growing up and how it is so interesting how all three of us, my older sister, my younger brother, and me, have wandered into different aspects of our Christian faith and come at it from different denominational backgrounds. Um, and yet uh, we could see the similarities and we could see uh, the places where maybe there were some questions that went unanswered when we were younger, that got answered when we were older. But mom has the most influence on a child's faith. Now, that's either a good influence or a bad influence. I said the most influence. If mom is strong in her faith and has a the kind of faith that is approachable, um, then I think kids benefit. Uh, Laura Perry Smalls, now her name it was Laura Beth Perry for years, um, and I have become friends over the years. 
Laura has a tremendous testimony of what it was like to grow up in a Christian home, hit the point of uh, the age of, I, I don't remember how old she was specifically, she may have been 18 or 19, when she had been wrestling with gender identity, and she decided that she was going to come out and transition her gender, become a man. She started taking testosterone. She lived for about nine years as a guy. She said, don't call me Laura, call me Jake. And I remember asking her the first time we met because she was living as Laura again. Now she's happily married stepmom and and has a, a tremendous testimony to share for anybody who says, well, we have to transition a child at age four if they think they are the wrong gender because they won't be happy. Um, I just encourage them to go to Laura's website, go to get her book and, and read the story because she would respectfully beg to differ. But she said, you know, I grew up in a home where my mom was very strict in her religious expression. She was very, very much that church mom. Dad was a little more laid back and maybe I identified more with him. I couldn't take the pressure of being the perfect Christian daughter with the perfect Christian mom. And she said, I knew that when I told my mom and dad of my decision, it was going to break their hearts, and it did. But ironically, it was Laura's mom who hung in there with her and tried to find ways to reach her, to stay in relationship with her. And it was the fact that Laura was a pretty skilled computer programmer, web designer, things of that nature. Laura's mom had a small group Bible study at her church, and she said, oh, we need a website, and hired Laura to upload, you know, to create the site, to upload the Bible studies, to upload the messages, to get the video stream for each week in case somebody missed it. And it was through that witness that Laura came back to faith. Mom really had a huge influence. So this Mother's Day, as we think about Mother's Day weekend, think about the good influence your mom was on your life, but also think about maybe some of the ways that uh, uh, it was a negative influence at first. And as parents, you know, give yourself that permission to say, hey, you know what? I did the best I could with what I knew. And if I could do it over again, I would. Um, you know, it, it, I, I think of people who right now are saying, well, there's no hope for, insert your name here, because they didn't grow up in the right home. And maybe their parents were the ones who were super strict in their religion. And that's why they wound up saying, I want to be a Satanist or, or whatever, an atheist. I mean, I think about, there's an organization called the Satanic Temple that has been getting a lot of press over the past several years because they have basically, I mean, they, they say there's nothing quote unquote satanic about what they do. They're just kind of uh, like the mirror image. What, what was it? Remember back in the old days when we got a picture taken and the picture was developed off of something called the negative and basically everything that was supposed to be light in the picture was dark on the negative, everything was supposed to be dark and the picture was light. And so they look kind of funky. But the negative was developed into the positive where all the colors showed up and that's where the picture was. I think people with the satanic temple would like people in the world to believe that the satanic temple is just kind of like the negative, if you will, of Christianity. But what they've done is they align themselves as an actual religion, though then they'll try to say they're not. They're pro-LGBTQ, they're pro-abortion, they're anti-Christianity, but then they'll say they aren't. But then the Satanic Temple has had a history of applying for opportunities, for example, to give an invocation at public gatherings, like a city hall meeting or whatever. 
there was a group in, I believe it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma years ago, that wanted to hold a black mass, and they, they, they rented space out at the community center in Tulsa. And a black mass for them just basically means it's, like, it's the opposite of the Eucharist. It's basically we're going to kill Christ instead of celebrate his death and resurrection. And when the city of Tulsa was confronted by a Catholic group that said, you're making a mockery of our religion, we can't believe you're doing this, the response they got was so weak, it was so tepid, it was so lame. Well, we've already established the rental agreement, and once we establish the rental agreement, we don't have any say as to what the people who have the agreement do in their their midst. Really. Here are city officials that were saying that if a Christian church came in and were going to hold a prayer gathering at their civic center, that if a bunch of angry atheists and crabby humanists showed up and said, that's separation of the church and state violation and you can't do it, that they wouldn't go to the church and say, sorry, we're tearing up your contract? Of course they would. Well, it's interesting because the satanic temple has found a way, they found a friendly spot with the media, they do these after-school Satan clubs that are supposed to be like the after-school release time education uh, programs with the Bible, and they've, we, we want to do invocations at town meetings, we want to have after-school things for uh, kids as well to show them that we're okay. And they've even gotten to the point where they had a convention. Uh, they did so the weekend of April 28th through 30th in Boston. And basically they called this Hexenacht in Boston. If you have your high school German dusted off, you know that uh, Hexenacht means witch's night. They basically hosted what they called SatanCon in Boston. Now, evangelist Sean Foigt went with a lot of other Christians from all over the country, actually. And he shared video from the event on Twitter over the weekend that showed what they were doing. The people who say, we're not hostile to other religions and this, that, and the other thing, there were people who were there who were literally with holding Bibles and ripping pages from them. They, they were you know, basically just doing what they could to disparage our Christian faith. Well, to their credit, a group of Christians that were part of a, an organization, one of the groups was there, IFA, Intercessors for America, showed up at the event and they said, look, there were Christians who actually went to SatanCon, bought tickets, and infiltrated the event. They wanted to go. Now, Intercessors for America said, to our knowledge, we did not know of anyone on the convention floor who shared shared faith in Christ with someone who wound up receiving the gospel message. But when it comes to what John Foyt had to say, he said, quite frankly, there's a big difference between the people who were on the convention floor and the people who were outside talking to those who were at SatanCon. According to Foyt, there were at least 98 people who professed faith in Christ for the first time at SatanCon. And another 15 people who said, I was a Christian, I walked away from my faith, and now I want to walk back into um, the the number of people who, yeah, my Christian brothers and sisters. 
according to uh, the IFA folks, the Intercessors for America, and their spokesman, Lynn McCaskill, numerous Christians from several Christian teams did minister to SatanCon attendees, and they had some great stories. We believe that seeds were definitely sown here. God really did move as we were able to be in the venue. Uh, it was very peaceful. It was polite. And we felt God gave us specific prayer assignments, especially on the Sunday, the last day of the event. And that was very powerful. Lots of people all across the country were praying, of course, leading up to this. Now, Sean Foyk said outside of the event, there were a lot of people who had been prayed for and said, yes, I believe in my faith in Jesus Christ is real. My faith that was once dead is now alive again. And how grateful we are to hear of that good news. That's certainly a good news Friday, and I wonder how many people had praying moms who were praying for those people who were at SatanCon and said, yes, my baby's home with the Lord. That's good news. Hey, let's take a quick break, and as we continue, a fascinating story of redemption from a woman who got everything she'd hoped for from God, and then seemingly it all disappeared. We're going to talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Well, today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to get into a conversation that's uh, not an easy one to have, but it's an important one uh, to discuss, too. Talking about a brand new book that was written by an author who is new to me, uh, Jeannie Rodriguez. And the book is called When Hope Met Hopelessness. And we've got a link. It's a true story. I've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jeannie Rodriguez, welcome to The Bottom Line Show today. Thank you for having me, Roger. Let's talk about um, the the. the the whole thesis for the book, loss and grief and dealing with these types of things. Can you give us just, we'll start right, go, let's just go right to the heart of the issue here. Kind of tell us the story as to why this book was necessary for you to write. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. There were several reasons um, really why, why I wrote the book. Um, one was to really give hope uh, to those who are, uh, grieving a loss, mm-hmm. um, and um, also for those who have, and also to encourage them that uh, it's okay to grieve, it's okay to gr- uh, to cry, and and also it takes time. You kind of have to sit in it for a while. You you can't rush it. I also want to uh, for people who have never experienced uh, a, such a, a loss. Uh, that they can understand a little bit more of what their friends or their family is going going through, and maybe have a little more compassion 
mm-hmm. as far as uh, to those people. And, you know, the, the, it was it was I was so broken. And yet it was only through uh, Jesus and the hope uh, that I was able to work it through. And I just want to give people encouragement in that process of loss. Okay, well, let's talk about the uh, the reason for the loss in the first place. Uh, you have a son, uh, Victor, and, and Victor had met the girl of his dreams, and you were ex- so ecstatic to have uh, Crystal joining the family as well. Talk about what it was like when you first met her. Oh, my gosh, Roger. <laughs> From the moment we met her, she just got into our heart. She mm. is one of those people that she has this inc- had this incredible smile Mm-hmm. And she just loved life. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so rare that um, someone so young left such an impact on my life. Mm. I, I, I fell in love with her personality and her heart, her love for life, for the Lord, and of course for Victor was simply incredible. Mm. And she was such a hard worker. And she was, uh, she, uh, you know, she worked. She went to school full time. Mm. She worked full time. She had several part time jobs, and uh, we just loved spending with her. You know, we don't have daughters. We only have two sons, mm-hmm. and she was looking for parents because her grandma raised her, and mm. her grandma had passed away. Mm-hmm. Her parents were still alive, but they weren't involved in her life, and she sure. just wanted parents. Mm-hmm. And boy, we wanted a girl. <laughs> and, <laughs> And it was it was a perfect match. It really yeah. was. And yeah. so she became part of our family almost instantly. And we wow. take her on vacation with us and family pictures. And I I would take her to I had taken to her first women's retreat and conference. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my husband and her would go off and have lunch together. It, it was just one of those perfect scenarios. Wow, that's it's such a beautiful uh, sounding relationship. Jeannie Rodriguez is with me today here on The Bottom Line, and we're talking about uh, what happens when a, a relationship that is that fond and that warm and that loving uh, turns empty I mean, and, and, and literally disappears kind of right before your eyes. Jeannie writes about it in a book that she calls A True Story, Hope Met Hopelessness, and we have a link for that book up at thebottomlineshow.com. How long, in Victor, how long were Victor and Crystal together before he finally got at the nerve to pop the question? They were going together three years, and then they popped, he popped the question, and it was a year they waited uh, before they got married. So she was in our life for four years. Wow. Four years, and then the wedding, which I'm sure for everyone involved, my goodness, with Crystal, you know, kind of marrying and making it official with the family and with Victor and you and your husband and everybody just coming together. What, a, what was the wedding day like? It was incredible. You know, what was interesting, here's a perfect scenario of who she is. It was supposed to be an outdoor wedding, mm-hmm. and it it rained, mm. and it was raining that week, and we realized we had to do a plan B, and we ended up uh, doing inside the church. 250 people were invited. Both of them knew so many people, and they were so loved, both Victor and, and Crystal, and so, you know, contacting people, but it was an amazing day. She just, it was like, okay, we're not doing it outdoors. Let's have fun with it because mm. really that's what she wanted people to enjoy the wedding. And right. it was so much fun and the dancing. And I mean, right up to the last minute, the dance floor was full and they both love family. 
And we had people coming from New, New Jersey, New York, Arizona, Southern California, from all over. And she, they didn't go off to the honeymoon right away. They wanted to spend more time. So we had everyone from the East Coast. We had breakfast with them. And then they went over to her side, the family who came from Arizona. They had a barbecue. And then they came back and opened up presents. It, you know, they, it was just so much fun. It was one of our highlights of our life. Mm, boy, it's it's amazing having had uh, a couple of weddings in my family for my daughters, and and uh, and then a kind of a simple ceremony for my wife's daughter. Uh, I, I don't remember that. I mean, they were great days. They were monumental days. I don't know that I've heard too many parents saying that was the highlight of my life or one of the highlights, but that that it had that much impact on you, Jean, Jeannie Rodriguez. I think it's just it's really incredible. And then the happiness, unfortunately, they went off to their honeymoon. And a couple of weeks later, you got that call, that text. Talk about, well, the phone call. Talk about what happened that day. In fact, it was the day before they were coming home. Mm. And um, I, had, I had my phone off at work. And so uh, after work, um, I turned on my phone and missed a couple of messages. And it was from this uh this uh, uh, gentleman who happened to be in the Bahamas and saw everything. Um, and he, he told me that there was an accident, that uh, parasailing accident. And as it mm. turned out, they were at the highest point and there was a malfunction and they both hit the water. Mm. And uh, that's when I found out that she had died. Mm. And, um, and, and come to find out also they weren't sure that Victor would even survive the next 36 hours. Oh my goodness. So it was absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, I, I, I felt, I always say, I felt my heart sh was shattered. It wasn't just mm -hmm. broken. It was mm -hmm. just shattered in like a thousand pieces. And yet uh, with that, the support that we received from the church and then also the community. My my pastor, Ray Johnston, Johnston mm -hmm. uh, gave me a call within an hour and said, hey, we, we're getting tickets, fly you to Bahamas, whatever you need, we're here for you. Mm. And our friends are still the house up. And uh, of course, you know, it wasn't laundry day, so we had a pile of laundry. <laughs> and they would say, I was even thinking, of course, we need clothes. And my neighbor across the street took one pile, and one of my friends uh, did oh. some clothes at our house. I mean, just the what, one one of my friends came in, just put a lot of money, a lot of money in my hand, saying, "You'll need some money." Mm. It it was just incredible as far as how how generous our friends and the church and the community was during this time. Absolutely beautiful. I have tears in my eyes, Janie. That I just love the way that they loved you, that the way they cared for you, that they just showed up. And I have to admit, I mean, my wife will uh, joke along with me here on this too. The fact that there was laundry involved and someone helped you with laundry, seriously, laundry is a big deal to me and our family. I would have thought the same thing. I got to make sure I have everything clean and straight for if we're going to go or whatever. In the middle of all this madness, I've got to have my laundry clean. And somebody, God met that need for you too. And I think that's precious. Janie Rodriguez is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Uh, the book is called Hope Met Hopelessness. And we're going to get into the recovery part, the, the what happened next on the other side of this break, because it's not you can't go through a tragedy like this alone. And obviously, there's some questions for God 
why would you bring this family together? And then why would you allow something like this to happen? We're going to get into how Jeannie has been working through the grief, working through the process and seeing where God is bringing his hope to meet her hopelessness. We'll see that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Powerful testimony today from Jeannie Rodriguez. Uh, she's got a brand new book out called When Hope Met Hopelessness, A True Story. And there is a happy ending to this book. We're just at the halfway point. Want to duck in here and remind you that we've got a copy to give away. Actually, how many copies do we have to give away? We have two copies. It's Good News Friday, and it's a great Mother's Day story uh, with Jeannie Rodriguez today. Two copies to give away here on the program today. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, Jeannie Rodriguez sharing her powerful testimony. The book is called When Hope Met Hopelessness, uh, a true story of uh, love and loss and Boy, when Jeannie tells the story about how Crystal, the daughter she never had, uh, married into the family, married her uh, son, Victor, and then on their honeymoon, wound up losing her life. They'd been married for exactly 12 days. Uh, it was just a powerful uh, moment that she went through, but it's amazing to see how God has his restorative plan. And this brand new book, uh, When Hope Meant Hopelessness, uh, tells you that whole story. We've got two copies to give away here on this Mother's Day edition, Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. If your mom is still with you or that mom in your life is still with you, this might be a good book to get and read together. What do you say? 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line here on this Good News Friday Mother's Day. Okay, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, Janie sh shares the incredible uh, conclusion of her amazing story, and uh, we also have opportunities, and th that's when we'll actually be giving away the books from Jeannie as well. So you want to stay with us through the break. There's more of this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line coming up next. Don't believe your insurance company is looking out for you. They're not. They want you to call them after you're in an accident, but you shouldn't handle that alone. That's where Stephanie Cover of Cover Law shines. With 20 years of insurance industry experience, she knows all the angles and will fight for your rights. Insurance companies pretend to be your partner, but in reality, their primary goal is to pay you as little as possible. When you work with Cover Law, Stephanie becomes your negotiator, and the insurance companies must talk to her, not you. You need to rest and heal. Stephanie is different from other attorneys. She's fully invested in your legal, medical, financial, emotional, and spiritual needs. After an accident, you don't want to deal with insurance adjusters who want to minimize your payout. So don't wait. Contact Cape Wright's personal injury attorney today at capewrightradio.com slash coverlaw. You won't pay a dime to talk to someone who truly cares about your healing. Jeannie Rodriguez is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh, smiling, even though this is a, a book about hopelessness and redemption and healing and restoration. Uh, the book is called When Hope Met Hopelessness, and we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jeannie's been sharing the story of how wonderful it was for her son, Victor, to meet the woman of his dreams, Crystal, and the, the three years that they dated, the year of the engagement, and then their beautiful wedding day, and then they jetted off to the Bahamas for the honeymoon of a lifetime, and the day before they were supposed to come back, uh, Jeannie getting a phone call saying that they had been parasailing, 
Uh, they both crashed very closely to the, I mean, from the highest point down to the water. Uh, Victor was fighting for his life and Crystal, uh, Crystal's life ended that day, at least here on earth. And she was ushered into the arms of her savior. Uh, you, when we left before the break here, Jeannie, you were talking about what it was like for your pastor, Ray Johnston, and your congregation to all come in and say, you know, we're here, we're, they're literally being Jesus with skin on. You were in shock. What happened next? Well, one of the things we also realized was that my husband did not have his, a passport. Oh, he no. was in the Air National Guard and always had a military passport. Mm-hmm. And when he retired, he never switched it over. So along the way, uh, we got a call from an ambassador uh, from Bahamas telling us what happened, which we knew. And he said, what can I do for you? And it's like, we need a passport. And he said, you just go to San Francisco and it will be taken care of. And once again, friends taking us there, um, we rushed over as fast as we can. And Mm -hmm. But it was so heartbreaking because we got to speak to Victor before we left. The doctors had put... Uh, the phone next to his ear. He couldn't, he was on morphine. He had mm. six broken ribs, mm. lacerated spleen, lacerated liver, uh, lung collapse. So, he, you know, he had a chest tube. Um, and like I said, they didn't tell us initially they didn't expect him to live. And I think that's probably why they wanted us to talk to him. Right. And one of the things that just broke my heart, Roger, was when he said, and you could hear the tears in his voice, when are you and dad going to be here? I am so alone. I'm mm. all alone. And boy, I tell you, as a mom, my heart broke when I heard that. Mm-hmm. But what I did after we hung up, I just started praying, asking the Lord, please let him know he's not alone. And when we arrived after the, you know, the kisses and holding the hands and everything, I said, Victor, I'm so sorry you were alone for so long. And he said, I wasn't alone. He said, all night long, people came in and would lay their hands on me and pray. Wow. And I thought, thank you, Lord, that mm-hmm. he, he answered a mother's prayer of taking mm. care of him, that he didn't feel alone. That's awesome. That's awesome. What was the recovery like for him? And what was it like for you and your husband, too? I mean, this is the daughter you never had. And I'm sure there were some questions and some long, angry conversations with God saying, God, where were you? Why well, you- did you let this happen? In fact, initially, and you know, I love the Lord, and I know how good He is, and I know He loves us. And, and I remember the first thing when I heard, and I remember saying, "Did you turn away, God? Did you not mm. see her fall?" I mean, mm-hmm. and yet I knew He was with her. It's that tension, you know. It's like you know what the truth is, but yet your heart is broken. And um, I think we were kind of on autopilot in the sense of trying to take care of Victor. So Mm -hmm. even though we were inside a mess, I tried not to fall apart in front of my son. Um, But he was hurting and he wanted to get off the island. Um, And, and of course they don't have the same equipment as we do. You know, our hospitals are pretty incredible. You don't Mm. realize that you go to a foreign place and the Bahamas did not have an MRI. He was, they were giving him blood. He was bleeding somewhere, but they couldn't see anything. And I said, we need to get him off. And um, we decided to go to Florida because a medevac was going to cost $75,000 to go to California. Oh, my. Wow. I know. And so but Florida was going to be over $10,000. Not mm-hmm. that we had that, Roger, but we had a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> right, but then. Right. 
you know, but then here's the incredible thing, Roger. One of the things, one of the people, I worked at Bayside during this time, okay. and, and one of the people who I worked with, she had come by and she said, I want you to know people are calling in saying they want to donate money. Wow. And um, so I called her up just to see, you know, how much. I said to my husband, it'd be great if there was like 500 or 1,000, you know. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a lot, I think, asking people. Mm-hmm. When I called up, she said, how much is it? And this told the, the official, the end, was $9,800. Mm-hmm. And I told her, she said, it's taken care of. That's how much money that people donated. Wow. They covered our medevac. Oh, that's that incredible. incredible. Oh, that's amazing. What a great story Jeannie Rodriguez is sharing with us today here on The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. When Hope Met Hopelessness is the name of the book, and we've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com. How did you deal with the emotional trauma? Victor came back. Um, you know, you've had your, I'm, I'm angry with God, but God keeps showing up. So it's kind of, you know, helping. <laughs> Uh, who did you talk to? Was it was it your counselor? Was it your pastor? And what about Victor too? Because I mean, he found the woman of his dreams, and now he's got a you know going from a fighting for his life situation to learning to basically live again without his. He, they were married for twelve days. Well, in fact, one of the things we said, we told him early on, as soon as we got back, we were he was going to have counseling because mm-hmm. we knew that was important, and right. we talked with him. I mean. The, we, you know, as far as the whole time, as far as we talked about Crystal, we we did cry together. I didn't completely fall apart, but you can't help but cry. Sure. Um, of course, I went to counseling. I also talked, I have a great Bible study. I've known them for like 30 years, and I was able to cry, you know, and talk to them. Uh, but also the main thing, I kind of lived in Psalms mm. um, and just cried through it. And God would keep on meeting me. And, and one particular time, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just crying away, and I'm reading. I'm having a pity party, what it is. <laughs> and I just felt like um, the Lord was putting on my heart uh, Psalms 116. And I, I remember just kind of blowing it off. It's like, in fact, I remember saying to the Lord, I, I'm having a good cry. <laughs> but the 116 kept going on my heart and and it's like okay fine i'll go to 116 not that i knew what 116 was why he wanted to send me over there and so um so i, I go over you know and um i start reading and when i hit for uh, verse 15 it says um how he rejoices in the death, that's what he said. He rejoices mm-hmm. in the death of one of his saints. Right. And I felt what he wanted to remind me is she was with him. Yes. And he would do that over and over. And I would I would think, yes, yeah, she's with him. She's, I mean, isn't that what we all want? Right. It's just that we wanted to have more time with her. Mm-hmm. But she was with him. And he would do that over and over um, as far as, you know, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the time I, I was walking, I would take it to the conference, Thrive Conference, women's, and um, I had gone to it, and, and I'm walking that morning before the second day and thinking, she should be here with me. She should be here with me. 
Right. And all of a sudden, just the presence of the Lord, his love came pouring down on me. So much, Roger, I had to stop. It took literally took my breath away. And it's like, oh, this this is what she is experiencing and probably ten ten times that amount. The mm. love of Jesus. Mm. So those are the things that really helped that and when I would cry out to him, he was right there. Mm. It's so In good fact, to feel that. The, good to know that. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Oh, it is. Well, you know, one of the things, about three months after Crystal died, it was late one evening, and I was home alone. My husband was working the night shift. Victor was living with friends now. I was downstairs sitting on the couch in the dark. That always tells you you're in a bad place. And the wind was whipping around outside. It was pouring down rain. And as I sat there in silence, the strong winds just rattled the front door so hard that it made me look over at it. And, and it hit me again. Crystal was never going to walk through that door again. She mm. was never coming home. Mm. And the loss of Crystal was so overwhelming because, you know, she had filled the space in my heart that I never knew was empty. And my suffering was just so unbearable. I had never felt such pain, not only in my heart, but literally throughout my whole body. Wow. I physically hurt. And I sat there weeping, which turned into sobs which turned into like a guttural cry. But I wailed out to God, will I ever be able to smile again? Will I ever be happy? Will I ever have joy in my life? And Roger, right after I cried out to the Lord, my phone vibrated. And I'm thinking, who's texting me at 10 o'clock at night? <laughs> but I picked up the phone. I wiped my tears away, you know, so I could see who it was. Yeah. It was my friend Kathy. And she wrote, I've been praying for you all weekend long. I've been praying for Victor all weekend long, but the Lord wants me to pray for you now. Mm. And I sat there just for a moment processing what was happening. Kathy was praying for me because the Lord put me on her heart. Mm, amen. God, who I just cried out to, was already looking out for me. Wow. And it just, in an instant, I just sensed the Lord saying to me, I see you and I see your brokenness. And really, that was one of the times that ho that's when hope met hopelessness. Mm. That's when God just met me. It was just the beginning. It wasn't like I was full of hope, but it was the starting of it. And I was just comforted knowing he's there. He, he sees me. That's a beautiful way to conclude our conversation about a, a very important topic about love and loss and grief and finding faith and a closer relationship with Lord, the Lord in the midst of all this. Jeannie Rodriguez sharing the story of her late daughter-in-law, Crystal, and her son, Victor, and how her faith was impacted when Victor's life was pushed to the brink and Crystal's life actually um, caused her to transition from this life to the next. But she writes about it in this fabulous new book called When Hope Met Hopelessness, a true story. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jeannie, thank you so much for being with us, for telling your story, and for sharing it with our listeners today here on The Bottom Line. Really appreciate you. Well, thank you, Roger. I appreciate you. What a great conversation, a delightful dialogue with Jeannie Rodriguez today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called When Hope Met Hopelessness. It's a true story about how Jeannie uh, her son, Victor, uh, Jeannie and her husband had two sons. She'd always wanted a daughter. Crystal, the daughter she never had, was welcomed into the family on the day she married Jeannie's son, Victor. And 12 days into their marriage, while they were on their honeymoon, uh, Crystal died. 
Um, the good news of this story, of course, you can read about this in the book, is that Victor has since remarried, and it's just a delightful, uh, happy ending, Nakoda is. But this book, if you've ever experienced love and loss, especially in God's economy, when you think God has answered a prayer, and then all of a sudden that person is taken from you, this is the kind of book to understand why God can take you from uh, the darkest days of unimaginable grief to unimaginable joy and an even deeper relationship with him. We have two copies of the book When Hope Met Hopelessness to give away. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Mother's Day, talk about the history of this day, the spiritual significance of it, and that amazing statistic that we always talk about, the valuable role that moms play in the lives of their children. Even if it's not a positive influence, it still leaves an indelible imprint. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. My thanks again to author Jeannie Rodriguez from right here in NorCal. Uh, for writing this great book called When Hope Met Hopelessness. It's a true story, and for discussing it with me today here on The Bottom Line. By the way, if you're just tuning in, if you're a KCBC listener who listens to us on Terrestrial Radio on AM 770, uh, don't forget that the first part of this conversation will be heard later today on Bottom Line Show Extra, 7 p.m., or you can just go on demand and download the podcast. Go to myhopenow.com. You can go to... Uh, any of the places where we download the podcast from, the Apple Podcast or Stitcher, tune in wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you download it because <coughs> make sure that you download it because it's one thing to go and listen, that's fine but the download doesn't cost anything and you can have it right there in your mobile device, on your computer, however you want to catalog these programs we encourage you to do so because uh, that's why they are here. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. As I mentioned before, we have three, uh, excuse me, two copies of Jeannie Rodriguez's book, When Hope Met Hopelessness. You know, here we are on the Friday before Mother's Day. And it's interesting, the number of people who uh, will look at Mother's Day and say, okay, it's a flowers and candy type of day. It's, uh, you know, it is what it is. But in all honesty, they'll say, not really sure why we do Mother's Day. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Um, Mother's Day, of course, is the holiday honoring motherhood. And it, I'll be perfectly honest with you, this is something that started back in 1914. A young girl by the name of Anna Jarvis actually had been doing this since 1908. It became an official holiday in the U.S. Anna Jarvis simply wanted to make it a day to honor moms. I mean... Mothers being celebrated, um, seriously, um, it was, it's been something that's been going on for a while. Um, the Greeks and Romans used to do it. Um, there was a Christian festival way back in the day, uh, started in the United Kingdom and parts of Europe. It fell on the fourth Sunday in Lent originally. And it was originally seen as a time when the faithful would return to their mother church the church in the vicinity of their home for a special service. So they called it Mothering Sunday, but that kind of became Mother's Day over the course of time. Interestingly enough, um, by the way, people are going to make phone calls on Mother's Day. Call mom, wish her happy Mother's Day. As a matter of fact, phone traffic, This and this is, was very true back in the old operator days and the landline days especially but phone traffic on mother's day jumps by nearly 40 percent 
because of all the activities. Um, the origins of what we celebrate today go back to the 19th century in the years before the Civil War. Uh, it was when Anna Reeves Jarvis of West Virginia helped start the Mother's Day Work Clubs to teach local women how to properly care for children. The clubs became a unifying force in the region until we were divided as a nation uh, by the Civil War. And then in 1868, uh, Jarvis organized the Mothership Friendship Day, which mothers would gather with former Union and Confederate soldiers, and they promoted reconciliation, kind of similar to the Decoration Day. Abolitionist and suffragette Julia Ward Howe wrote Mother's Day Proclamation on eight, in 1870 that was a call to action that asked moms to unite in promoting world peace. In 1873, she campaigned for a Mother's Peace Day. Uh, didn't really necessarily happen. But then there was Juliet Calhoun Blakely, a temperance activist who inspired a local Mother's Day in Albion, Michigan in the 1870s. And then the duo of Mary Towles Sassine and Frank Herring both worked to organize Mother's Day in the late 19th and 20, early 20th centuries. And uh, Frank Herring was actually referred to at some point the, uh, <laughs> the father of Mother's Day. But it was, remember I mentioned Anna Jarvis back in 1868. Uh, Anna Reeves Jarvis was her name. Uh, in the 1900s, Anna Jarvis then followed uh, her mother's uh, footsteps. And in 1905, her mom passed away. And so Anna Jarvis decided that the Mother's Day celebration that has become what we know it today would be a way of honoring the sacrifices mothers made for her children, starting with her own mom. So a Philadelphia department store owner called John Wanamaker uh, put together the first official Mother's Day celebration at a Methodist church at Grafton, West Virginia in May of 1908. He put up the money for it. Thousands of people attended a Mother's Day event at one of his retail stores in Philadelphia as a result, and it was a huge success. Now, Anna Jarvis, the daughter, never married, never became a mother. But she was so enamored with her mother, Anna Reeves Jarvis, in her testimony that she resolved to see the holiday added to the national calendar. So basically, she said, the reason is really very simple. A, I love my mom. And B, all the other holidays are really kind of male-oriented. They're, they're more based on male achievements. So she started a massive letter-writing campaign to newspapers and to politicians. Imagine if you will. I mean, now it's so easy. Go online, go to a website, click yes, and it all gets sent electronically. But everybody having to write out each individual letter. But it worked four years later. By 1912, many states and towns had adopted Mother's Day as an annual holiday. She created the Mother's Day International Association to help promote the cause. And by 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed the measure officially establishing the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. Now, you can imagine that the woman, of, the woman who gave birth to this Anna Jarvis lady, who's incredible, who was a... a, a a women's right suffragette. She was an abolitionist. She thought that Mother's Day would be, hey, you go to wear a white carnation as a badge when you visit your mother or attending church services. And to, chances are this Sunday when you go to worship, they'll be handing out carnations. But once it became a national holiday, more people started acting like John Wanamaker, the department store guy in Philadelphia. And all of a sudden, the florist said, we can sell you a white carnation. And card companies said, make sure there's a card that goes along with it. And so by 1920, Anna Jarvis had been <laughs> completely disgusted with the holiday. And she denounced it. 
She started an open campaign against it. By the time she died in 1948, she had disowned the holiday and even actively lobbied the government to get rid of it. So that's your history of Mother's Day. And Jeannie Rodriguez's mother's story called When Hope Meets Hopelessness is the book we're giving away today. Still have two copies of it to give away. 800-227-5278. The number to get you through to the bottom line. On the other side of this break, a personal reflection about Mother's Day involving my mom and another mom who's very important in the lives of my kids. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to an expectant mother is the gift of the first picture she'll ever have of her son or daughter in the womb. That comes through an ultrasound, and our friends at Preborn have an opportunity for us to make more of these ultrasounds a reality. Every time you give a donation of $28 to Preborn, that means one more ultrasound can take place. But how about giving enough money for an ultrasound machine? The cost is $15,000. It's a sizable investment. But every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts at least 10 years. Now take that cost $15,000 and divide that by 2,500. Okay, now you begin to see how the cost per ultrasound goes down even more once we have more ultrasound machines to donate into preborn clinics. Make a donation right now to preborn. It's completely tax deductible, and every penny, every dollar you donate right now is going to the purchase of an ultrasound machine. 833-850-BABY is the number to call, 833-850-2229, or go to kbrightradio.com. That's K-B-R-I-T-E radio.com. Click on the banner for Preborn and make your best donation right now. $25, $50, $100, it all counts towards saving babies' lives. kbrightradio.com. Hit the Preborn banner right now. Welcome back to this Good News Friday, Mother's Day weekend edition of the program. Roger Marsh here, just a couple moments left and uh, for you to call in and get a copy of Jeannie Rodriguez's book, When Hope Met Hopelessness. Uh, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. We have two copies of the book left and the drawing ends at the top of the hour. So make sure you get your call in, 800-227-5278. And since it is Mother's Day this Sunday, I want to thank a few folks um, who, uh, basically every mom who listens to the Bottom Line Show, thank you for listening. Uh, Everyone who has a mom that is going to be celebrating this weekend, thank you for listening as well. I want to thank my own mom, Kathy Marsh, for being such a great example in my life. And uh, from my love of broadcasting to baseball to, to faith, uh, those many conversations with your chatterbox son. Uh, I love you so much, Mom. And uh, as we get ready to put 90 candles on your birthday next month, I'm grateful that we get to celebrate this Mother's Day together. Uh, also to my wife, Lisa, my precious bride, uh, who has been such a fantastic mom to, to her three kids, who are now my three bonus kids, and uh, such a great grandmother as well. A great awesome grandmother not a great grandmother yet we're we're still working on the grandparent part but i'm so blessed that lisa is uh my partner and i am hers and that we get to share the grandkids that we have together but also the great job she did with kevin and taylor and brian and then also for uh my mother-in-law mary jean hall uh, lisa's mom i want to wish you a uh happy mother's day mom you know nice special shout out to you on this special day i i love being your son-in-law and uh, you are one of my favorite people that's for sure um also i just want to conclude today's uh, this segment of today's program with a special shout out uh to my daughter kaylee uh earlier today kaylee culminated 
just basically most of her life in school. <laughs> she's she's gone so far in her graduate studies. Uh, she finished up her uh, PhD in biokinesiology today with a special emphasis on uh, the treatment of Parkinson's disease and uh, got to walk today, as it were, to get the hood. Uh, next month, she'll be defending her dissertation. And so I, I'm not officially allowed to call her Dr. Zaponta uh, yet, but uh, we'll, you, when that happens, you'll know because actually she defends her dissertation on her grandmother's 90th birthday. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, I, I think about my kids and, uh, and the example that their mom set for them. And uh, they, it was, uh, you know, people are always looking for a straight line between us and heaven and, uh, you know, a straight line between uh, God's will and what we're called to do. And uh, my kids had a, a, a jagged line like all kids do. Uh, in the relationship with their parents, with their parents divorcing when they were relatively young and uh, holding things together. But uh, I just wanted to get a, a special word to Kaylee, especially on this special day for her and to Em and Jake as well, um, how much their mom loved them. And uh, I know that she was smiling on you today as you were receiving that award at school, getting your PhD and how proud she is of you. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how God uses, um, sometimes he, he does his best work, his best refining work in the broken pieces of our lives, whether it's a failed marriage or a tough relationship between spouses. And when we think about what he does to rebuild us and restore us, and I think of the relationship now, my love for Lisa and the, the marriage that we have, uh, couldn't be more blessed. But I think about how Mother's Day might be a tough spot for you this weekend. And if it is, I just want to encourage you to let God take everything that you have, the happiness, the brokenness, the bitterness, and the joy, and give it all to him and let him make something really beautiful out of your life as you continue to walk in faith and trust him. That is the good news, and that's the bottom line. For those on KCBC, enjoy Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus, which is coming up next. For those who remain on the network, it's Good News Friday. That means there's more good news still to come as the bottom line continues. Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and we've got good news today. Um, and it's good news that it's also kind of a bit of an analysis, balance, and clarity segment. Does that make any sense? I like to do these from time to time. ABCs are so important. And of course, analysis, balance, and clarity, just if you've not heard me use that phrase before, if you go to my website, rogermarsh.com, you'll see I'm always talking about, you know, blogging or vlogging the ABCs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's important. When we talk about the ABCs, when it comes to, uh, you know, education, for example, we think about the first years of school back in the old days. Remember, uh, maybe far enough along to remember what it was like to go to a grammar school, I think they were called. I don't remember ever seeing a school that was referred to as a grammar school, but there were three stages of development. There's grammar, there's logic, and there's rhetoric. And grammar is the, you know, you're getting the basics. You're learning the alphabet. You're learning how to form the alphabet into words and those words into sentences and sentences into paragraphs and paragraphs into papers and that little bit. And then you're learning how to count with your numbers. Then you learn how to add your numbers and subtract your numbers and multiply and divide. And that's all happening in, in grammar school. And the same thing with, you know, you don't really get much into history too much unless you live in the People's Republic of California like me. And then you, you're getting all sorts of crazy history that you don't need. But when we talk about the ABCs here, what we're talking about is getting analysis, balance, and clarity on the issues of the day. Analysis means that we look at, uh, we do a deep dive. We, we get as much information as we possibly can on a particular incident, 
uh, or circumstance so that we're not just kind of getting mad about stuff. If you read too much social media, if you watch the news at all, or if you just spend time talking to your friends who all have opinions, chances are you've heard a lot of those opinions that really aren't backed in anything other than emotion. And if you are being governed by your emotions rather than by the feelings, what is it Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire says, facts don't care about your feelings. I did find it very interesting that during the COVID pandemic, uh, Ben was one of the guys who was saying, we need to shut down and we've got a mask and we've got to get vaccines because I'm a father and I have young children. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, when we look back now, three years later, and there was yet another report that came out. I saw this in, I believe, the Epic Times, uh, that there's a study from a major university that now basically confirms the fact that all of the measures that were in, we were instructed to follow during the COVID pandemic yeah. didn't help. That the people who got vaccinated are just as likely to get COVID as the people who didn't get vaccinated. Now, there's a possibility that depending on your season in life, whether you have a health challenge, they call a comorbidity, something that when coupled with something else could lead to uh, an earlier time of uh, termination, as it were, then, then yeah, the vaccine for some people might actually help. In some cases, if you are in that situation, the vaccine might actually make things worse. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, one thing that we stress here at the Bottom Line Show, and I'll continue to stress this uh, until the program is not anymore, is that I was never anti-vaccine. I was always anti-mandate. And, and I, I, I'm proud of that fact. I want people to be able to choose what you think is best for you when it comes to your health. Now, people would say, well, then what about abortion? I mean, you know, what, what do you think you're pro-vaccine, you know, pro-choice? I'm absolutely pro-choice. If a woman wants to have an abortion and abortion's legal in her state, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't do it. I will make a very compelling case for why you shouldn't do it, but I'm just going to point my finger at your chest and say, hey, don't do it. I would much rather show an ultrasound picture, play the heartbeat of the child, show the various gestational uh, development stages that are available with a lot of pro-life ministries, take them to a pregnancy resource center and let them experience all of the wonderful love and care they get for free. Um, I think of our friends at Preborn who uh, work with us at the National Crawford Roundtable and also are, are sponsoring the Bottom Line Show. And the fact that we have, we've saved literally thousands of babies and have provided, bottom line shows, provided at least six ultrasound machines. Last year, Preborn uh, put in 62 ultrasound machines nationwide. Six of those came from bottom line listeners. Those are $15,000 a piece. But each ultrasound machine that's donated provides uh, 250 ultrasounds per year for a minimum of 10 years. So when you consider that it typically costs about 28 bucks to do an ultrasound procedure in the office, but if a machine is donated and you don't have to pay extra for it, um, you can do them for about you know five or six bucks a whack. Um, go to rogermarsh.com, hit the link there for Preborn if you're interested in supporting that group. But that's part of the analysis. And then balance, make sure you get it from both sides uh, or all sides. You know, some of the, the, the world has become so nuanced when it comes to cognitive dissonance, that very few people really have it. I believe that Christians, this is one way that we can stand out among the crowd, is that we could look at an, an event like abortion or uh, capital punishment or uh, you know uh, transgender issues or something like that, and we can look at these things objectively and biblically and share the truth with people. You'd be amazed uh, the the number of people. I was reading on uh, Instagram not too long ago. Someone posted a meme about how now six or seven point two percent of all Americans, uh, American adults, identify as either lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer, LGBTQ. And you know who's leading the way in this? It's obviously not Greatest Generation. It's not even baby boomers. 
something like 11% of millennials and 19% of Generation Z identify as either LGBT or Q. And the bulk of them are either bisexual adults or people who are considering identifying as transgender, even though the majority of Generation Z who identify as transgender have no intention of changing their gender. They just like referring to themselves as they, or I'm non-binary, or you can't really pin me down, or, or maybe they know a friend who's wrestling with it, and so help me. They'll say, well, I'm going to be that way. I'm going to, that's, it's identity more than just, you know, I want to live that lifestyle. And so it's, it's interesting how we as Christians, when you get the analysis part down, you'd really do your homework, balance, you're looking, you're not just watching Fox News or One American News or Newsmax or something like that. You dip into CNN or MSNBC. I have to warn you though. I mean, realize you do have some folks who lean a little more left than right. And MSNBC, during the, right after the 2016 election, MSNBC tried really hard to be more moderate and they succeeded for about a year. Now it's just a freak show. I mean, it's just anti-Trump all the time. Uh, CNN is trying to be a little more moderate because they've been taking such a battering in the ratings. And Fox News isn't quite as conservative as you think they are, but they're still a lot more accurate than the other big ones. But have two or three different news sources. If you look at the bottomlineshow.com, when we take a look at a story, you'll find stuff from the Christian Post, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, CNN, not too much from MSNBC. I just, just, I mean, it's all hysterical. And 85% of it, statistically, has been proven to be opinion pieces every now and again you want just the news right so anyway the analysis balance and clarity the clarity then is of course now that you've done the deep dive you've looked at it from uh multiple angles you can then have a better sense of what's really going on and that's important that's a good for us as believers to have it's a great witness to have in the culture so then there are three other letters here in that equation d is for discernment Biblically, that's a mandate from us. When you see what we discernment that leads to wisdom, it's essential. And then E is edification, and then F finally is faithfulness. So that's the reason why if you go to my website, you see rogerbarsh.com, you see, you know, talking about the ABCs. That's what we're talking about. And so today we have a Good News Friday story that I think is good news, but we have to do a little ABCing first. And it involves the number of churches that closed during COVID and aren't reopening. Now, I know initially we might think, well, that's awful. I mean, especially some of these churches I'm going to get into here are historic churches, you know, founded in 1848. And uh, there's one that's got a 200-year-old congregation. You know, that these are relics that are remnants of a bygone era when there was a stronger, you know, faith in Christ, perhaps, in these areas. But COVID shows up and declining attendance shows up. And, and quite frankly, I haven't seen too many churches that were thriving and then got shut down by COVID and couldn't restart. Most of the churches that I have seen anyway in the two years I've been following this, I'm talking about the two years of COVID. You know, first year, nobody really took into consideration what was going to happen long term. But by 21, that's when you started to see churches saying, hey, we're not going to be able to reopen. We're going to have to shut down. I read a really beautiful blog post from a pastor friend of mine who was the guy who did the uh, uh, he ran the junior high group when my daughter Emily was in there 20-something years ago. And he went back to Minnesota and visited the church where his 100-year-old grandma used to go. And they had to sell the church. Basically, they're shutting it down this spring. They, they were actually, as a matter of fact, they shut it down right after Easter. 
and they shut the church down. And I, he was talking about all the great memories he had there and how sad he was. But there was a little excerpt at the end of the article that got me thinking, and that's why I wanted to share this good news with you. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk about why it may actually be God's will for a church to shut down instead of continuing on with eight members or ten members or renting out their sanctuary for weddings and uh, school events and things like that. Why it may actually be a better thing for that church to say this season is over. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Always great to share some good news with you here on Good News Friday. And our Good News Friday story this week involves a church that was forced into being sold. And you're probably asking, why, Roger? Why is this good news that a church is being sold? Actually, lots of churches are closing down and being sold. And I think this is really good news. Now, hear me out on this. Okay, remember, we're going to do some analysis, balance, and clarity to find out why. The analysis side, what exactly is happening. The balance side, we're getting it from different uh, points of view. And then the clarity side, well, what are we really talking about here? Every time I hear about an old church in a historic neighborhood that gets forced to close and eventually winds up being sold, it does make my heart break a little bit. The first church I ever remember going to, Oneonta Congregational Church in South Pasadena, California, uh, is famous for, I mean, that neck of the woods is famous because uh, unbeknownst to me, while, let's see, I was, I was born when my parents, my dad was the minister of music at that church. My sister was a year old when we started. My mom had me the next year. I was baptized when I was two in that church. And it's, uh, we actually, there were some guys who played for the LA Rams who used to sing in our church choir. Well, the, the claim to fame for that part of the country is that's where Jim Daly, the president of Focus on the Family, you know, the host of Focus on the Family show, Jim and I are about the same age. And he grew up in that area, Ontario, excuse me, Alhambra, South Pasadena, whatever. We didn't know each other. We've only met a couple times, but I'd love to swap stories with him and see if he's ever been to Tui's there right off of uh, Huntington Drive. <laughs> that's where we used to hang out for about 10 years when I was a kid. Anyway, I, that church is still going, but that church was ancient. There was a sanctuary built on the property, and then there was a building called the Founder's House, this really cool old Victorian-style home, which was Sunday school classrooms. It was the Christian Ed building, but that was also where the caretaker used to live in the basement of that place. And a lot of churches are like that. Um, not too long ago, I came across a story in the New York Post about a church in New York City, or actually in Manhattan, that was up for sale. This was a church that had been described as one of New York's most picturesque 
Houses of Worship. It was in the Murray Hill neighborhood in Manhattan. Um, it was called the Church of New Jerusalem. Um, in addition to being called the Church of New Jerusalem, um, it was also referred to as um, Swedenborgian, the new church, part of a very small denomination whose teachings were developed by a Swedish scientist and philosopher, a theologian by the name of Emanuel Swedenborg, who is also something of a mystic. Um, he came to the U.S. and started planting these churches. There were about 30-odd congregations like this uh, during the uh, late 1800s. By 1900, the uh, total enrollment of all 30 of these Swedenborgian congregations was around 7,000 people. Um, today, there are still people who worship in churches like this, but um, it's maybe a quarter of that. So basically, um, this church, actually, he came to New York City, Edinburgh, uh, Swedenborg did, in, uh, in, in 1805. They met in different locations until eventually they, uh, they purchased a building at, uh, on Pearl Street, 1821. In 1838, the church sold the Pearl Street building to the Zion Baptist Society. They started meeting at different locations in the 1850s. They moved to a new place. By July 1st, 1858, the cornerstone was laid for a Gothic-style edifice that would measure 75 by 50 feet, and it cost, in 1858, $15,000. The church's property was extended on the right of the building in 1866. By 1990, the church membership had dwindled to 18 people. <laughs> and so the church had to close. Now, the church basically had owned the property outright up until this point. When they had the water damage that came in and messed up the roof timbers, they wound up selling some of the property to cover the repairs. They had a, a row house that was on there and they sold it for about 3 million bucks because they needed 1.6 million to restore the church. The sanctuary still seats 220 people, but quite frankly, in the 1990s, the only real reason, the church had like 18 people going to it. And eventually they were just pretty much a glorified wedding chapel. That's how they stayed afloat. I've preached in churches that are like this and it's sad. I mean, it's wonderful for the 10 to 15 people who come and worship. Uh, there was a church here in Southern California that was between pastors, and I was part of a team of guys that went in and preached every Sunday for them. They had an Hispanic congregation that was renting out the church in the afternoon. They had two parsonages on the property, and they were renting them to college students. It was near Biola University and uh, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, by the way. And, um, and then they also had a preschool facility there but they were renting it out to a private preschool so they were paying their bills but the church just wasn't able to hang on and they were part of a lutheran denomination that basically swooped in did a quick claim on the deed and wound up selling the property i think they turned it into houses now but see there lies the the rub isn't it you know we talk and talk and talk about how the church is not the building it's the people who go there but let's face it I mean, there are some really nice churches all throughout America. There are some massive churches that have the cool sound stages and the lights and the panels and the rock walls for kids. And also they're on acres and acres and acres. I was watching, uh, Lisa and I like to watch Tony Evans, uh, the urban alternative pastor uh, at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas every now and again. 
And he was going on about how their church complex is so big. Tony never branched out and did different uh, satellite campuses. He's got one main campus. They have a golf course. I mean, they've got acres and acres and acres on their church property. You know, when you consider that Tony Evans graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary with his master's and his doctorate in the mid-70s, after he finished his MDiv, uh, even the seminary wasn't sending him out on calls, and so he and his wife started Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in their apartment. But you know who else started their church in their apartment is uh, Rick Warren and Kay Warren started Saddleback Church. Their most huge churches wind up starting as a house church somewhere, which then begs the question, how many churches went under as a result of COVID, but how many of those churches were kind of teetering on the brink Here's another example. First Presbyterian Church of Des Moines, Iowa. This is a church that was first chartered in 1848. But by April 2020, right after Easter, they had to shut down for good because COVID knocked them out. Now, it would be short-sighted for us to say, well, obviously, everybody's attendance went down dramatically because of COVID and the lockdowns and the shutdowns. And some churches were able to, uh, you know, do the video technology and other churches weren't so much. And trust me, I've seen some churches, man, um, you know, it doesn't cost that much to get a couple of good cameras and a mixer and some video production equipment and a couple of good microphones to broadcast your service from the church at, you know, on a streaming service. But how about 221-year-old First Presbyterian Church of Belafonte, Pennsylvania? They wound up closing after their Christmas Eve service, 2021, due to declining attendance and declining membership. And here in our own backyard, remember on in December of 2021, Potter's House of Denver got ready to sell the Arapahoe County uh, megachurch. They, the reason they've decided to go completely viral and virtual because of declining attendance, declining membership. And statistically, we see this from Tom Rainey, uh, from the Lifeway Research people, from George Barna, Church attendance dropped by about 25% during the pandemic, and church attendance is still down by about 25% post-pandemic. Well, now, wait a minute, you're saying. Roger, you said this was Good News Friday. And I am just kind of curious as to why you think this is good news that all these churches are closing. I don't think it's good when a church gets together and is forced to close because of declining enrollment. But let me tell you something. There are a couple reasons why it can be a good thing. First and foremost, if this is a smallish congregation trying to function as the body of Christ, I don't believe that they're actually serving the community well by getting together and just holding a service, doing it the same old way they did, that those folks are better off in a different, more vibrant community. To everything, there is a season, right? But secondly, how many of those churches are in old historic church buildings like this? You know what that means? Can we talk a little bit about real estate and equity and how we can better steward the money to which God has entrusted us? Let's talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But the first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment, and the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat, and you think, wow, how 
how can I bless someone else? Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of, it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into preborn health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says preborn. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn. Make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year. So give a gift right now. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. And sentimentally, anytime I hear of a church that's been around since 1848 or 221 years or, you know, was planted in 1805 by Swedish immigrants, my heart gets a little sentimental. Oh, isn't that great? Isn't that sweet? Boy, I love the rich history here. Until, you know, because trust me, the new megachurch model is not for me. If there's no altar, it's not for me. If there's no baptismal font where people can actually go get baptized, it's not for me. If there's no place for Jesus because you've got to have a drum stand and you've got to have laser lights and your pastor comes up there with his iPad and a coffee cup and puts it on a stand and preaches to you, uh, and I don't mind saying this. I'd say this to anyone in person too. Where's Jesus? There has to be an altar. There has to be an altar. Well, he lives in our heart. Yeah, I know, but if we're coming to worship him and bring the first fruits of the tithe to him, we bring them to the altar and literally give them to him. We don't tithe on PayPal or with a box out the way. But anyway, new church in Manhattan, Murray Hill actually, just sold recently. This was a almost 200-year-old congregation. They bought the building in the mid-1800s. They paid $15,000 for it. It has grown in value. Actually, it's been shuttered for about two years. And it was sold for $15 million. You know who bought it? The Serbian government. Now, my first thought was, oh, great. That's exactly what we need is them moving in. But you know what they're going to do? Um, they basically are going to make this their embassy. How cool is that? They wanted something with a little bit of history. And so it's going to be their new United Nations mission. And they're going to have a church there as well. Okay, good for them. $15 million. So the question then is what happens with the church? You see, when a church sells property, the church is a nonprofit organization. It's not like you take the money and pocket it and off you go. The church has to find a place now to donate these funds. I've sat on a couple of these boards where an organization, there was a Christian college that went under and they wound up selling some assets that they had. It's a total of a billion, a million dollars, excuse me. And we formed a board of directors for that uh, nonprofit group for the express purpose of finding the right organization to which to donate the money. And we found a Christian university in the Midwest. We convened, we uh, called to order, we voted to donate the money, and then we disbanded the board. It was kind of fun. But $15 million can do a lot, can it not? How about some of these other churches I was talking about? I mean, the, uh, the, the building in Des Moines, Iowa, that sold for two, two, uh, back in 2022. The 221-year-old Presbyterian church. Potter's House in Denver just sold for $12 million. Even my buddy I was telling you about earlier, my friend, Pastor Nathan Hoff, whose mom lives uh, somewhere in Washington State, 
and or his grandmother anyway, and she's 100 years old. She's one of 17 members left in their church. And he wrote this really long, beautiful uh, ode to the church as it was closing. They had to close down. They closed down right after the week after Easter. And he said, it's going to be really sad. And he says, I'm just praying that they will be able to steward the $7 million that they got for the sale of their property very well. Take a look at the churches around you in your neck of the woods. Maybe even look at your own church and ask the question. It's nice to get together and meet at God's house for 50, 75, 100 people and provide a few services like a preschool, maybe a senior lunch or something like that every week. But ask yourself the question, in these strategic times that we're living in right now, could we not do a better job of stewarding the resources we have? There are hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars tied up in church properties. And churches proudly say, hey, we paid off the mortgage. We got the... So you're sitting on a $20 million property. That's a good place for your church to meet. But these are strategic times, brothers and sisters. Wouldn't it be better to rent a public school or meet in someone's home or something like that and put that $20 million to work in the community with medical care and English as a second language classes and homeless shelter projects? I mean, think of the things you could do with that money. The churches in Africa you could build. So as much as I hate to see an old traditional historic church with stained glass and brick and mortar going by the wayside, I love the fresh possibilities that God is releasing the storehouse and saying, opening up and saying, plant this seed, go and preach the good news, use this money for a whole different purpose. Isn't that good news? (laughs) I think it is. And that's the bottom line.